Good morning to you, all right? All right. If you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Uh, we just started a brand new study guide. If you walked in this morning and didn't or missed uh, and you weren't with us last week, we had the opportunity to hand out, I think we handed out like 1,500, sent 10,000. How many did we hang out? Did we hand out last week? Do you remember? Four or 500 last week. So we still have some more. If you didn't get a study guide, this will help you engage with God's word on Sunday morning and then outside of our time here together on Sunday as you study and meditate on God's word throughout the week in your community group, in men's groups or women's groups that you are in. So if you didn't get one of these, grab one. They should be at the doors on the way out uh, on either side. Uh, but if you would, why don't you grab uh, your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 9. Before uh, we get into it here, and as, as we're turning, we're two weeks away from our church going to two services, and um, I haven't said anything about this recently because we've just had so much work to do in preparing for this re new reality in our church. Uh, it, it's something that we as the elders are trying to steward as our church is growing, and I want to ask for your help really in two particular ways as we're two weeks away from this happening in the life of our church. Number one is patience. Uh, you know this, uh, no matter who you are, no matter what season of life you are in, that when you face a new season in life, you start uh, praying desperate prayers. You remember the prayers you prayed when you first got married? Men like, all right, I'm married. Now, how do I be a husband? Right? And you get, uh, you hit intensities of when they hand you that eight pound crying child and they go, go home. And then you start praying on the way home. What am I, in our case, we had two that we shoved into the back of a car and we went, all right, here we go. Um, that every season of change in life, you know this, um, every season of growth that you face requires you to change. It requires you to think about things differently, to synthesize information differently. And as our churches grow numerically, we've had to think differently about how can we continue to help people take their next step with Jesus uh, as they come to our church and they hear God's word and they're connected in relationship around God's word. So that's a process that isn't totally clear, neither to our staff or, nor to our elders. So we're constantly in the evaluation mode. And we're, we're seeing as our church grows, we face kind of challenges and obstacles and kinks in the system that we have to work out. So in that, and as we work through that together as a church, we ask really for your patience. Uh, for you to be patient as we work out new systems, as we work out parking, as we work out how people make their way in and out of the building, how they get connected into groups, how they uh, engage in the student and children's ministries, all of those systems that exist in the life of our church right now are undergoing constant reevaluation, constant change. Uh, so we're going to ask for your patience as we work through this new season of two services together. But second, and maybe more importantly, is that we would ask for your participation. When change happens in the life of the, of the church, uh, what I'm going to ask from you, if you call Citadel Square your home, is for your participation in what God is doing here in the life of Citadel Square. As we have um, come up to this reality, as our church building begins to fill up and the parking lots begin to fill up, we are having conversations with people who are taking their first step with Jesus more now than we have in the previous past five years. 
So what I want to ask you to think about and you to pray about is how has God gifted you in this body? If you call Citadel Square your home and your church, you have gifts given by God, given through the Holy Spirit to be a part of building up the body of Christ. All the spiritual gifts passages speak to edification being one of the main purposes of why you are given spiritual gifts. Whether that's greeting or serving or teaching or evangelizing or administration or finances, whatever it is, God has put gifts in you to strengthen and support the maturity of his body. And that's what's happening here. So as that's happening in the life of Citadel Square, I want you to start planning to participate in the work that God is doing here for his glory. That you wouldn't just be a part of seeing things happen, but that you would get in the game and you would have a hand in seeing God do great stuff in and through the people of Citadel Square. So that's our request. One, patience. Two, participation. I made them both alliterate. Isn't that good? You got to go to years of seminary to get things to alliterate. Uh, but I did it here this morning. So uh, we're going to spend, uh, tonight is our mo- a church-wide monthly prayer gathering. We're going to spend a few min- minutes just at the beginning uh, to pray for this coming change in our church, that we would all have our hands open and be ready to get in where God would have us serve in the life of this body, all right? So that's what's coming. Uh, join us tonight in- down in the chapel for prayer. Uh, as we'll work through Psalm 27 and pray for some of these things in the life of our church. All right, right, did you find Luke 9? Three of you found Luke 9. And we gave, you have a Bible and a study guide, and we have free Bibles in the pews. So I'll give you another 15 minutes to find Luke 9. As you're turning to Luke chapter 9, uh, we're at the end here of Luke chapter 9 during our time. Here together we'll be in Luke 9, 57 to 62. Last week we looked at uh, Jesus encountering rejection at the hands of a Samaritan village. And we saw James and John ready to call down fire from heaven. And we really saw Jesus show a remarkable amount of restraint. Because he has now been rejected in his hometown. He's going to be rejected in Jerusalem. And he's going to be rejected on the road. And one of the things we looked at that was uh, consistent or at least helpful for us to understand how Jesus is thinking about this next season is what began our time last week that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He had a measure of resolve about the work that God had given him to do. Now what Luke does in his um, in his thematic treatment of this travel, from Luke 9 to about Luke 19, Jesus is on the road until he finally lands in Jerusalem. So Luke will take this journey to Jerusalem and stretch it out and spend a lot of time teaching us about what discipleship and walking with Jesus is like. So right next to this passage that we looked at last week where Jesus was rejected, where Jesus had to rebuke his disciples, for their desire to call down fire from heaven, we're going to see today a passage on discipleship. Now, what you have probably discovered over the course of your life, if you've been in your career for a number of years, is that all of us, sooner or later, will face challenges and obstacles. And Jesus is facing challenges and obstacles in the form of rejection. And there's nothing like rejection when you experience to challenge the resolve you have to the person you want to be, to the ambitions that you have in your life. No doubt many of you have faced obstacles in getting to where you are in life, in large part as a result of overcoming rejection. 
that it's caused you to think deeply and more purposefully and more defined about who you are, where you're going, what you want to accomplish, who you want to be. And what we have in this passage here this morning is a challenge to walking with Jesus. Do you think you're going to, do you think walking with Jesus is easy? Do you think walking with Jesus is just, well, he raises the dead and heals the sick and everything's going to go great in my life? Have you ever, Christians, found that walking with Jesus is tough? Okay. So if you don't walk with Jesus, hear from the Christians in the room right now who are telling you that walking with Jesus sometimes is difficult. So this passage that you're going to look at right here makes us ask the question, why does Luke put a passage on discipleship right next to a passage on Jesus' rejection? And he does it in such a way so that we would get an understanding of what discipleship is really about. You are going to need resolve to walk with Jesus. You are going to need courage to be his disciple. The process of being a disciple with Jesus Christ is not easy. It comes with ups and downs. It comes with, he leads me beside green pastures and still waters. But sometimes he leads me through the shadow of the valley of death, right? But he's leading. So it's clear, the calling is clear. The pathway is difficult and you're going to need resolve and courage to face it. So I'm going to pray, and what we're going to look at here today are three conversations from three people who are called into discipleship with Jesus, and Jesus is going to expose some things that perhaps all of us bring when we come to our relationship with Jesus, where we need to get corrected, redirected, and exposed for how we understand discipleship to work. All right? Let's pray. Father, for all of us in this room, Father, whether we've been walking with you for 30 years or it's three, day number three in our life. We pray that as a result of looking into your word here, we might get a greater picture and understanding of what discipleship is all about. You pull no punches here. You are completely clear. You show us exactly what it means to walk with you. So, Father, would we have open ears and open hearts and open hands to understand how you might be challenging us, how you might be guiding us, how you might be correcting some of the assumptions we have about what it means to follow you. And Father, would we be sensitive to your spirit here this morning to understand how we might need to grow and take our next step with you, confessing sin, repentance, exhibiting repentance, and finding freedom through your spirit and our great confidence that Jesus loves us, Jesus forgives our sins, Jesus dies for us, and even now Jesus is speaking through your word and through your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake, amen. All right, we'll take a look there. Luke 9, verse 57. We'll be in that right little paragraph, 57 to 62. As they were going along the road. Now, you can imagine that the group of people that is with Jesus is probably streaming from Capernaum and Galilee in the northern area. No doubt the disciples are with them. We heard from them last week. But as Luke pieces his gospel together, fresh in the minds of the apostles is the fact that Jesus has just been rejected. It's been something that Jesus has told us all throughout Luke chapter 9. You can just flip back and you have at least two passages already that Jesus has shown us uh, that he is forecasting his coming death. 
He's communicating the disciples that the road that we're going to walk doesn't merely end in rejection, but it includes rejection along the way. And as the disciples are hearing Jesus' restraint and watching Jesus' resolve and experiencing Jesus' rejection, now this road is starting to be the pathway where they're learning the lessons about becoming a disciple that God wants them to learn. They're learning and being shaped by their encounter with Jesus and not just his miracles, but now that Jesus' resolve and rejection is starting to shape their perspective. Because when Jesus leaves, they're going to have to get creative in their understanding of discipleship. As you move into the book of Acts, also written by Luke, Luke recounts a variety of pressures that show up in the life of the church. A variety of challenges politically, religiously, from within the body, ethnically, all sorts of issues that now the church is going to have to deal with. And the people now that are following Jesus have to be reliant on him and they have to trust him as they become the disciples that Jesus wants for them to be. And by these three pictures that he's about to give, he's going to show the kind of disciples that we ought to be, albeit in a negative way so that they might understand the challenges they're going to face as well. So along the road, come the disciples. And the disciples and Jesus, as they're walking in this large group, probably more than just the 12 and Jesus, Jesus has somebody who rushes up to him and confesses what you see at the end of verse 57. As they're going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Isn't that a great confession? Some of you have probably made that confession at some point in life. I've said this before in our life together as a couple that one of the prayers that we prayed both spoken and unspoken before we came to the city of Charleston was God we'll go wherever you want us to go. Wherever you need us to go, wherever you desire for us to be, whatever future you have in store for us, God we will go wherever you want us to go. And it's such a good confession because this is really the foundation of a healthy spiritual life. Amen? That in some measure, all of us, when we come to Jesus and recognize he died for me, he's forgiven my sin, he's taken it upon himself, and now I have eternal life, freedom from sin, certainty about my future, and for all eternity, God, whatever you want from me, wherever you desire for me to go, my hands are open. My desires, I want your desires to be my desires. Because if you don't have a confession like that, if there hasn't been a point where you have prayed that prayer and you've said to yourself, God, I want to be where you are. I want to go where you want me to go. Then it's one of the basic foundations of our Christian life. That God, we're willing. God, our hands are open. It's an important confession that should characterize all of our spiritual lives in some measure. And it doesn't mean that you're going to end up in the Amazon, in a canoe, eating bugs. It might mean that you get married and stay stateside and you coach soccer in Hanahan and you raise a couple kids and you're a faithful and evolved church member. And one of the difficulties, I think, for all of us, especially those of us who consume any amount of American media, is that we want our, our spiritual Christian lives to be sexy. Don't we? We want them to make an impact. We want them to be glorious. One of the greatest challenges to our spiritual lives as Americans is that so much of what I do is mundane. Anybody drink coffee this morning? 
Wasn't that incredible? Did you feel the spirit move when you had to run out to the garage in 28 degree weather and find the creamer? Right? But I, I discipline my kids and I pay bills and I, tax season is coming and, you know, I don't feel like that much is happening, but there has to be a core conviction for every Christian, for everyone to say, God, I'll go wherever you want me to go. Now, what you're going to find in this passage is that there's a tension that Jesus exposes because everybody's got a good confession. It's easy to say this, amen? You know when it's hard? is doing this, right? It's easy to say it. It's hard to do it. And that's what is really the, the kernel of Jesus' response in verse 58. Look at verse 58. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes. That's good. And birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now why... Does Jesus answer that way? If you were Jesus, wouldn't you say to this person, that's awesome. This is great. I've got a committed, faithful disciple. I've got someone who's ready to go anywhere, to do anything. He's totally committed to the cause. They've just seen me be rejected. They're on board with the mission. But that's not what Jesus says. Now let me take the second half first. Jesus says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now if you know... Throughout the course of Luke, Luke has used the title, Jesus has used this title of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a glorious, powerful, dominion-filled title from Daniel chapter 7. Where the Son of Man approaches the throne of God himself, and to him is given a kingdom and power and dominion and authority. But now when Jesus refers to himself in this context, he says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus never owned a home. He was like a good, you know, he's like that college roommate you have who keeps staying on the couch. As far as we know, he never hosted a meal. He had no 401k. He had to borrow a mode of transportation in borrowing a donkey. Maybe he hosted the Last Supper. He was born in a stable that also wasn't his. He lived with Peter and Peter's mother-in-law. So imagine living with you, your wife, your mother-in-law, and Jesus. I mean, that's a sitcom waiting to happen, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus was blue collar. Jesus had less than the majority of the people in this room. You could shoot dice for his clothes at the end of his life. All he had was, he didn't even carry money on him. The Pharisees came to him and were like, hey, why don't you pay the temple tax? And he tells Peter to go fishing, take the shekel out of the mouth of the fish and give it to the people. So it's like Jesus didn't even need pockets. Now look at the first part of the passage. First part of verse 58. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That the Son of Man has less than even his creation does. So what's he saying? Why is this the response to a confession that is so wonderful? Why does Jesus come back with, I have nowhere to lay my head? See, note the illustration Jesus uses. The holes of foxes and the nests of birds are places of safety, aren't they? They're places of security from predators. They're places where you can get away. They're places where you don't have to always be on the run. 
They're refuges. They're places of security and comfort and protection. And see, what Jesus is doing here is he responds to this person with this incredible confession that he's willing to go wherever and do, do whatever and follow Jesus wherever, is that what Jesus is doing is not just responding to the confession. What Jesus is doing is responding to the expectation. See, all of us have ways where we confess to Jesus that we're willing to go wherever until we go there and we realize it doesn't fit our expectations. Suzanne and I did not plan to come to Charleston. It wasn't on our, on our radar. We first took a job in a place called Mount Pleasant, which I thought had to be close up to the Appalachian Trail. And I thought it must be Pleasant Mountain. Let's see if we can find it. And my wife pulled up a map and she said, do you see how close to the water we are? So we made the confession to the Lord. Lord, we will go and suffer for you at the beach. <laughs> Lord, I'm willing. My hands are open. And we came to Charleston. We had no family. I took my wife away from her family. She was pregnant. We couldn't even have the window wipers on as we were driving because it would make her nauseous. We got to Charleston. We spend six days in Charleston before we go and talk to an OBGYN who tells us we're having twins. Here? Where did you put us? Not to mention we had one two-door car. We brought our twins home in a borrowed SUV. And so much of your relationship with God a lot of times gets to a point where you go, God, I said I'd follow you, but I didn't expect this, right? I didn't expect this to be a part of following you. And what Jesus is saying is that it's better for you to be walking with Jesus than it is for you to have the safety and security that you expected out of life. It's better that you and I are on the road with Jesus, uncomfortable, because a lot of us want to follow Jesus just up until it makes us uncomfortable, right? And it happens in all sorts of ways where we get disturbed, we get uncomfortable, we feel like, un we're, we feel unsettled. Christians, have you felt that? That nowhere for you, the more you walk with, the more I walk with Jesus, the more I recognize this world is not my home. I'm more and more unsettled. I don't want to stay. I don't want to find my ultimate hope and my ultimate security. The desires of my heart begin to move that I'd rather be going with Jesus than safe and secure in this world. And see, what Jesus does to this confession is open it up and go, what do you really expect discipleship is going to be like? Do you expect to be comfortable? Do you expect there to be security? Do you expect there to be certainty? Do you expect there ultimately to find your home here in this world? So Jesus has to peel it back and show that underneath a lot of our confessions are a whole bunch of expectations that we don't discover until we get uncomfortable. Now, should we just close? Because that's pretty convicting, right? Let's just leave the other two for later. That's conversation number one. 
But discipleship, you know, let me talk about this real quick, 30 seconds on discipleship. A lot of times discipleship is understood as being primarily, let's minimize sin and let's grow in godliness by knowing and understanding God's word more. And that's great, and there's a part of that that's a reality. But ultimately, one of the things that you're going to find in this passage especially is the fact that a lot of times our discipleship needs to be, uh, you got to kind of get a backhoe into your life and pull out a lot of the things that you've been saying and discover what's really going on in your heart. You know where my expectations live. They don't live out here when I talk to you guys. They live when I'm driving and I'm thinking about stuff, right? They live when I'm, when I'm frustrated and disturbed. And one of the questions that you can ask yourself is, what did I expect out of discipleship? Do I expect that God loves me enough to disturb me and make me uncomfortable for the sake of my spiritual growth? Christians, what do you think? Yes? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And one of the reasons that you need older and wiser believers in your life is that they have the eyes to be able to see. It seems like God has put you in a situation where you expected it to be a lot easier and now you're uncomfortable. Can I show you Luke chapter 9, verse 57 and 58? So there's your first one is the expectations. Here's number two. Look at verse 59. To another, he said, follow me. Now the first person comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, this is awesome. I'm going to follow you. This person doesn't. This person is confronted by Jesus himself. This person is given an invitation by the Son of Man, by the second person of the Trinity, by the Messiah of God. And this person has Jesus speak to them personally and give them a personal calling on their life. And he says to them, he says to her, he says to him, you follow me. It's totally clear. Is there anything unclear about what Jesus just said? There's nothing in there about angels or demons or when he's coming back. or None of that. There's no questions. There's no information. Jesus gives nothing other than a face-to-face, -face, personal, one-on-one -on -one call where this person is supposed to follow me. It's in what's called the imperative mood in the Greek, which means it's not a... You see how follow me doesn't have a question mark? Follow me? No, it's direct. It's an imperative. It's a command. You follow me. But he said, let's see how this, how this is going to go. Lord, let me first. Now just stop right there for a minute. You should laugh out loud when you read your Bible sometimes. And you should think to yourself, this person just called Jesus the Lord. He's the master. He's the boss. He's the second person in the Trinity. He's the son of man. He is God incarnate. God in human flesh here on earth. And he's calling me to follow him. Now, Jesus, hang on a minute. Jesus, just, just let me first. Jesus, just hold on. Now, before we see what he's going to say, what his excuse is, his delay is, that he's asking Jesus to wait on. Have you ever been in a spot where you've said to yourself or you've said to Jesus, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Just let me, let me get through this degree program. Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Let me just get through the holidays. Jesus, I'm going to make you a priority, but let me get the kids back to school. Jesus, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to you about the kind of man that I need to be, but i got to get this business deal done first. Jesus, I've got, 
I'm going to follow you, but I'm going to follow you once I, once I get married. And then we'll, we'll build our marriage on your word and your life and your calling for us. I'm going to follow you once we have this kid. Because right, I know kids need spiritual upbringing. We're not going to go to church now. We'll go to church once we have kids. And then I really want them to be in the church. And see, this person has a, a problem not so much with the clarity of Christ's command. It's very clear what he ought to do, what she ought to do. They ought to be following him. They ought to be on the road with Jesus toward his rejection, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, and ascension. He ought to be a part of what Jesus is doing. But he's got a problem because he's got mixed up priorities. He's got things out of whack. He's making certain priorities too great importance in his life. And it's caused him to actually reject Jesus Christ who invites him into relationship with himself. I'm not going to do the whole follow Jesus thing right now because I've got more important things. Now let's look at what the more important thing is. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now here's the question when you're, when you're looking at this and thinking about this. Commentators go back and forth on this, so there's kind of both sides to it. Some think the father has already died. It may be that this man now has social and religious and familial obligations that are pressing upon his life right now. And burial for the Jews was a very important thing. You couldn't leave bodies out very long. We didn't have refrigeration. You had to bury him quick. But if this man is on the road with Jesus already and he's already traveling, I think better to think about this is that this person is thinking about one of the highest social religious obligations of their day. And he's saying there's going to come a time, maybe his dad isn't dead, but he's ailing. He's at the end of his life and he can see on the horizon that there are some obligations that I have to be a part, that I have to speak into, where they're going to need me to make some decisions when dad passes. And in fact, this is one of the greatest and most significant social and religious realities in the culture. This was more important than Passover. This was more important than sacrifices. This is more important than reading the law. This is more important than even circumcising your son. This was in such a significant place in the culture that everybody would agree that burying dad is important. Everybody would agree that this is one of the most important things and honors that you can exercise for your family. So this man is hearing the call of Christ to follow him, and at the same time, he's dealing with social, political, religious, political, but social, familial, religious obligations that are out there in his culture. Now, Jesus has already upended some of our understanding of the family with what he said all the way back in Luke chapter 8. Here, I'll read you Luke 8, verse 19. Then his mother and brothers came to him, and they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and brothers are standing outside to see you. When he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So let's think about This isn't a person with a lot of expectations. This is a person who seems to see their family culture and their social culture and their religious culture pretty clearly. This isn't a person who's saying, Lord, will you just wait until I get through this stealing cars phase of my life 
I'll follow you later. I just, I just want to finish doing some of the stuff that I want to do. No, this is a person with great loyalties. This is a person with the right priorities. So let's see what Jesus says. Verse 60, and Jesus said to them, leave the dead to bury their own dead. You know, I don't know if you thought Jesus was gentle, but that's pretty harsh. Isn't that pretty direct? My dad's still alive. Yeah, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The key to this response is the distinction between the two kinds of dead, right? But the dead, spiritually speaking, bury the dead, physically speaking, right? That's the only way that sentence really makes sense. So what Jesus is doing is calling attention to the fact that there are human priorities. But if you'll notice, one of the, you know, what can you skip work for and not get any sort of pushback? One, jury duty, right? But number two, funerals, right? Very few places of employment are going to refuse your opportunity to go to the funeral of a dead loved one, right? But here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus takes this illustration of there's a funeral happening and he said there's something of greater importance than the death of a family member. There's something that should control your life more than the death, the physical death of someone in your life. And look at what he says. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What's he doing? The proclamation of the kingdom of God, if you, if you haven't been with us through the course of Luke, has controlled Jesus' ministry outlook. He heals all day long, and then he gets up to go to the next village, and he says, I don't have to heal somewhere else. I have to go and proclaim the kingdom of God because that's why I've come. It's been the singular driving force in Jesus' ministry. And for Jesus to respond this way is to say that there is a greater priority in your life that cannot be taken away by physical death, and that's investing in spiritual priorities that can outlast physical life. Amen? Why would he tell them to go and proclaim the kingdom of God? Because the kingdom of God, when it proclaims, heals not just physical life, but eternal life. See, if I build my life on everything that my culture and society and my family demands of me, I will miss the opportunity to be in authentic relationship and calling with Jesus. This person is specifically called to be a minister and to preach and proclaim the kingdom of God. And the way we feel this is really when we examine our own priorities, isn't it? What priorities do you have right now that wouldn't fall to the bottom of the list without a, with a good funeral? Right? What are the challenges right now in your life that if someone called and said, well, that person just died, would your life change and your priorities rearrange? And Jesus says, you're invited into experiencing and partaking in a greater priority than anything else this world can, has to offer. All the priorities, uh, it's, um, gosh, I wish I could remember it right now. It'd be a great cross-reference. I believe it's in Ecclesiastes that when this man dies, all of his dreams come to nothing. 
This is why for the Christian, here's what a Christian's called to do, Colossians 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? He has forgiven your sin and he's called you to walk with him. Then you should have priorities that are his priorities, right? You should be driven and pulled along. Do you see what he calls him to do? Not just to proclaim, to go and proclaim. That our Christian lives should be pulled along by the priorities of Jesus Christ. Paul goes on. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth, for you have died. You've died. You've severed the essential relationship with this world. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, this isn't saying don't bury grandma. You can, in obedience to Jesus, care for your loved ones. But Jesus is saying, you can't do that instead of obeying him. Because you have a greater, Christians, you have a greater kingdom, eternal life calling placed upon you. And you are going to scatter from this place into the variety of places that God has called you to be witnesses, to be salt, to be light, to be agents of preservation, preaching about the opportunity to have eternal life in Jesus' name. Don't miss why you have your career. Don't miss why you have this season of life. Don't miss the purpose of your education. The purpose of your education is not to get a job. The purpose of your education is to walk in the calling that God has put upon your life to be an agent and a minister of reconciliation between men and God. Amen? That's why you're here. That's your priority. So number one, obstacles to discipleship have to do with the things that we expect out of discipleship. Number two obstacle that we face in discipleship is getting our priorities mixed up. We forget what it is we're here to do. And we get distracted with all sorts of social and familial and relational obligations that tie us down and pull us away from that priority of following Jesus. All right, those are the first two. You ready for number three? Here we go, verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you. Another great confession, right? So we have a person who comes to Jesus of their own. Number two, we have a person that Jesus specifically calls personally. Number three, we have another person that confesses that they're going to follow Jesus. I will follow you, Lord, but let me first. Now, if you're going to circle something in this passage, you're going to circle, but let me first, and connect it to the previous passage, aren't you? Both of these next two people have a confession with a caveat. They've got a confession, but they also want something out of this deal. They want to still be the boss of their life. They still want to get something out of this relationship, just like the first person did. Would you agree that when you come to Jesus with stipulations that you hear laughter in heaven? When you come with God, I'm going to need you to dot, dot, dot. God, I've got some things that you need to do before I'm going to follow you. That's what both of these people are saying. Lord, I will follow you, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. 
Let me first say farewell. You ever leave the house without remembering to kiss your wife? I've done that twice. I don't do it often. You ever leave the house? I've done this in the past too, where I left and the kids didn't know I was leaving. And the kids come downstairs and they go, where's dad? What happened to dad? So I get that phone call. I'm like, you didn't tell any of the kids that you were leaving. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a divine moment when you leave the house, in our house. The spirit of God rests upon you. You gotta make sure that you, you kiss each, each girl and you hug each boy. And if you tickle one of them, you better tickle all of them because otherwise, tears, right? And then you kiss your wife, and then you hit the stairs, and then you turn around because they all want to do it again. And then you can finally make it out to the car, and you get everything plugged in. And don't miss the fact that you've got to wave to everybody, too. But if you miss the waving, then they're all going to be sad on the porch. This is just how my life works. I don't know if your life works this way. This is what happens with my life. So, Lord, let me first say goodbye, say farewell to those at my home. So, let's see how Jesus exposes this confession. Verse 62. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I used to run a lawn crew in my earlier days in college, and we used to have to mow MetLife. MetLife was this gigantic uh, campus, and it would take us probably six hours to mow this whole thing. And I would would, mow... operate a riding mower. It was a skag mower. If you don't know what skag mowers are, great. Mowers real strong. Orange. Could kill you. They're real mowers, right? So you would ride on this mower and you had these controls. And one of the things you learn as you're on a lawn crew for hours and hours and hours and hours, six hours straight of mowing, is that you like straight lines. Amen? If you ever mow, fellas, I want straight lines. Don't wander around the yard. Use geometry. It's why we teach it in school. So that you can get out into real life and know what straight lines are. And the only way that you are able to mow straight lines is by two things. One, it's by watching the previous pass that you had. So you line up your wheels on the right side of the pass that you just had, and you go all the way down. But if you're not paying attention when you're mowing, your eyes are not on where you're going. Your lines are going to start doing this. And to do that in a large, multiple acres kind of facility required attention. It required focus. It required commitment. And when Jesus uses this illustration, plowing wasn't something, we don't do it with a combine in Jesus' day. It's pulled by animals. And essentially a plow was a stick with a piece of metal on the end. And you had to uh, use a lot of focus and a lot of attention to be able to plow straight and to get the work done you needed to do. Just like when you drive, you don't look over your shoulder in the rearview mirror as you go forward. Right? You're not always paying attention to the rear view. You're not always looking out the backside of the car. Because if so, what Jesus says is you will be unfit for the kingdom of God. Now, what does this person want? This person wants their emotional life to dictate their discipleship. This person's heart is divided over the things and the people and the places that I have back there. So that their heart is still there, but their confession is with Christ. And what's going to happen? 
Look, if this is you, and I think we've all been there, right? We've all been in places where God's calling us into new seasons, but we want to be back there. Our heart is still back there, and we're saying we want to follow God, but we end up having this divided and separated allegiance. And if you live in that place too long, your spiritual life will continue to be characterized by bitterness. You'll never really look forward. You'll never really give your heart to the journey that you ought to be on with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is calling his people to follow him. Where? Into rejection. Into suffering. Into discomfort. Into places where they don't get what they expect. Into places where their priorities need to get rearranged. And into places where it might cost you emotionally to walk with Jesus. It might rend your heart at some times to be faithful to the things that Jesus is calling you to do. Amen? There are going to be difficult conversations that you know are faithful conversations because you're walking with Jesus. There's a biblical character whose name is Demas. Demas is mentioned in the title of the book of Colossians, and he's also mentioned in the book of Philemon as one of Paul's fellow workers. But by the end of Paul's life, in 2 Timothy, Paul writes that Demas has deserted him because he was in love with this present world. And Demas isn't a long character study. It's just a character study of an individual who got to walk with Luke. Luke himself knew him. He got to walk with Paul and see the miracles and see the advancement of the gospel. And he got to a point in time where he kept cranking his neck back. He kept looking over his shoulder. He couldn't look forward into the things that God had for him and what God was calling him to. He kept wrestling with the love of this world. See, these conversations show us that discipleship often goes a lot deeper than we expect it to, doesn't it? It examines our expectations. It examines our priorities. It examines our affinities, our loves. And the interesting thing about this passage is that there's no responses, are there? We don't know how these individuals responded to Jesus' words. And the reason these are here for us in 2024 is to recognize that our own discipleship needs to be examined, doesn't it? Our own priorities, our own expectations, the, the loves and the affinities of our heart that, that cause us to have a divided relationship with Jesus need to be identified, need to be repented of, and we need to come back again to step onto the road with Jesus toward whatever he has for us. So I'm going to ask Jared and the band to come, and I'm going to ask our prayer team to be available. They'll be available in the balcony, and they'll be available in the back. But this passage is meant to end with questions about where are you? You're meant to reflect on the fact that Jesus has just been rejected, and with great resolve, he's about to go and do something for us that we could not do on our own. So as we stand and as we sing and we confess the goodness and the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ over our lives and the hope that we have in the gospel, maybe you need someone to pray with you. 
Maybe your expectations in discipleship have been off. Maybe your priorities are out of whack. Maybe you have a divided heart this morning. And maybe your next step is simply just to confess that and say, Lord, I, I need help. I need reorientation. I need my heart to be right. And God, would you do that for me and give me a perspective that I might understand who you want me to be in this season? So Father, we confess that this text hits us a variety of ways. We all think about competing priorities and competing loves and expectations that we put upon our discipleship that may not have been accurate. So Father, for our church in this place, as we seek to make disciples, as we seek to teach and obey all that you've commanded, would you give us a heart of repentance? Would we be sensitive to your word? Would we be men and women who, if we're out of step, are willing and eager to get back in step? And Father, as we pray that we might present to you hearts of wisdom, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart might be pleasing in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Father, change us and shape us and free us from attachments to this world that do no good for our spiritual lives. Would we worship you in spirit and truth? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.